And tonight being one prep, the half moon night. It's our practice we come together to meditate, chant, recollect the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, recollect the Buddha, our teacher. most excellent teacher of gods and humans. Excellent because he showed us the way out of suffering. to the pathway to perfect peace. And we can see that the emphasis of the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha's words, the instructions he left us was always to develop insight or wisdom understanding of truth as the way to free ourselves from suffering. There's a phrase he used, Panya Chiwing Chiwitamahu Seta Living without attachment or living with wisdom is held to be the most excellent way to live. Pointing out the fact that human beings we can through our own efforts train ourselves, develop wisdom and understanding to sort out our problems, our stresses, our suffering. We can do that. And this is actually the highest, the most important thing for human beings to do. We have that potential and it's our good chance, good fortune that we have if we have come in contact with the Buddhist teachings and we have a pathway to develop understanding. And all the teachings are giving us supports and vehicles and tools to develop this understanding, to develop wisdom. Obviously hearing the Dhamma, reading it, hearing it is important, is, is valuable in the practice. We, we have to understand the point that the Buddha was also pointing more deeply to our hearts and minds as the place where real knowledge and insight arises. 
just intellectual knowledge or memory of the teachings alone is not enough to free our hearts from suffering to experience perfect peace and happiness. So the words of the Buddha and the, the Dhamma that we hear and understand, we do have to keep internalizing, see that that's the pathway of practice, to bring them into, leave a lasting impression on our heart and to actually purify the heart, changing our view and the way we look at things. And the Buddha and all the disciples of the Buddha have proven that this can be done. As human beings, we can do this. So very much at the heart of the teachings the Buddha gave, the Buddha talked about the impermanent, changeable nature of conditions. In the very last teaching he gave, he said all conditions are impermanent. So bhikkhus strive on earnestly, uh, conscientiously, heedfully in your practice because all conditions are impermanent. In the very last teaching he gave. And the theme of impermanence runs through the teachings as a reflection, a way a tool to develop insight. Also the very fact that conditions are impermanent means that we can, as individuals, we can change and improve ourselves and change things through the practice. We can change the world around us and we can change ourselves. If everything was not impermanent, if everything was fixed, and that would be it, we couldn't practice. There's no point to practice because it was all fixed. But because all conditions, physical phenomena, mental phenomena are impermanent, that allows us to practice and to improve things. <coughs> Another reflection you might bring up from that is the fact that whatever improvements in the practice we do make, whatever progress, understanding, insight we make, is also subject to impermanence. In that if it is not yet, the mind is not yet fully trained to completely see the impermanent nature of conditions, well then, whatever we've developed, whatever we've gained from the practice can also drop away, degenerate. So the very reflection on impermanence brings up more heedfulness, more carefulness in the practice, and non-complacent attitude, because we know because of the nature of impermanence, impermanent conditions, even what we have understood, practiced, any happiness we've gained may still disappear if we don't look after it and don't keep practicing. 
So just the reflection on impermanence itself brings up all kinds of useful insights into our life, into the nature of our mind and heart, nature of the world around us. But to use impermanence as a vehicle for reflection, to begin to pay attention to impermanence, we also have to train the mind to do to do that, to put it in a position where it can notice impermanence and understand and accept impermanence. And we, as we know, when we begin practicing, even though impermanence is affecting us all the time in the world around us, we are often not very clear on that. We're not seeing it or understanding it. And that's one of the big sources of suffering, dukkha, in our lives. Not accepting impermanence, not seeing it, not understanding it. So we're training ourselves in this path of practice and we can use impermanence and icha as a reflection, a guideline, a tool as we go about our practice the way to reflect on the nature of this world the nature of our mind so that we don't get too stressed out by things so even a an experience of suffering whether it's a confused or agitated mind state for instance or some physical pain and painful feelings or just unpleasant conditions that arise in the course of our daily existence. At the very least, we can start reflecting on this and how the, these are impermanent phenomena. If we can bring that reflection up at the very time of that kind of suffering, whatever it may be, even that is enough to free the mind a little bit from whatever's going on not to take it so seriously, not to identify with it so strongly. So from day one in our practice we can use the insight into a Nietzsche. Because it's there all the time for us to see. And it's a very direct way to free the mind from suffering. I mean, noticing how things do arise, pass away, they're impermanent. But we can also see to sustain that reflection and really use that reflection on impermanence, we also have to practice. We have to make use of the, the path of practice that the Buddha left us to make that insight clear and to really uh, give the mind a chance to free itself from suffering. And this is why we practice Sila, keep precepts, follow the monastic training and practices, the Vinaya. This is why we put effort into developing mindfulness, concentration, and then contemplating experience. All of this requires effort, time, energy, and so on. 
it's all necessary to help support the quality of the mind uh, to develop this the wisdom faculty that can see and experience impermanence and know it for what it is and free the mind from suffering so we train we train every day and that the, the result of our training is we start to gain more quieter you might say or more stillness more quieter states of mind through restraining in the beginning maybe our more exuberant and outgoing tendencies that lead us to get a little bit too caught up in the world the excitement of the world the depression of the world the ups and downs of life training in just basic mindfulness and sila helps us to deal with that not to get let the mind go out too much to get caught up in the world, the objects of the senses and so on so it can calm down a little bit and start to use say, the reflection on impermanence as a, a real vehicle for developing wisdom insight it's a bit like say when you go for a walk in the forest whether it's here or anywhere else if you walk through a forest and you're moving all the time you generally only pick up a little bit of what's going on in that forest. You'll you'll notice some of the trees and the vegetation and maybe just a very few animals. But generally you'll miss a lot of what's in the forest because you're moving through it. And possibly won't see any animals at all. And even the trees, you might not really see them very closely or recognize what they are. But if you sit down or stop, stay still long enough, maybe for a long time in one place, for many hours, then you start to see more of what's in that forest. Animals will come past you and you'll notice the trees, their branches, their leaves, the shape of them, the different vegetation, the atmosphere of that forest, the temperature, the weather and so on. Particularly animals, you'll notice the birds, the animals, because they'll come past if you're sitting in one spot or still for long enough. That's a basic truth that if you quieten down and they're more still, then you'll see things more clearly, get to know things better. This is why we practice sila. You're starting to restrain the more extreme movements of both body and mind. So as a Buddhist monk, we, there's a lot of physical things we don't do. We don't play sports or play music or run around. If we have fun, it tends to be a more of a subtle kind of enjoyment. You can appreciate humor or pleasantness of conditions but we don't tend to get too physically stirred up as a result of keeping precepts you know all the different secure waters and the practice of restraint body and speech tends to quieten us down a bit and that's this this process of a stilling the mind also is quietening the 
our physical, external physical behavior, our speech quietening down a bit, being more restrained, more mindful in that, allows us to see the mind and to see what's going on, see the nature of phenomena more clearly, because the mind is still, it's quiet. You notice when you're very active and not practicing much mindfulness, or it's very easy for the mind to get confused, emotional, stirred up in things. It doesn't mean to say as a monk we can't be active, but we have to understand the principle of just restraining our behavior, restraining our eyes, our ears, tongue, nose, the body, the movements of the body, so that we can start to observe our experience more closely. And say, if you're contemplating a Nietzsche, then you can see very quickly the nature of our experience is a Nietzsche. You can see, once you start to practice sila and keeping the vinaya, then it's a, it's doable to start looking at your mind and see, say, mind states arising, passing away, not necessarily acting on every impulse, every reaction, every impulse to speak or to do. Sometimes through our practice of sila, we let go of different reactions, impulses and we can just watch them arise, pass away. Sometimes we do follow impulses, maybe it's necessary to, or we have the opportunity to do that without breaking sila, but generally the effect of practicing sila is one has more awareness, more mindfulness arising, and one can start to see the anicca of mental states, volitions, sankharas, which is the very heart of our problem as human beings is that we're constantly being affected by all the thoughts and moods coming up in the mind and these lead us on to do things. Obviously we can do many good things in this world so it's not that a monk has to just physically stop everything, not do anything. But we do have to be able to filter, filter what we do, our behavior of body, speech and mind. And to filter things you have to quieten down enough to see what is what. What is leading to dukkha, what is more unwholesome, what is wholesome, skillful, what is useful. So the practice of sila and restraint directly leads on to insight into a Nietzsche, if one understands this, the process and the way of practice. Obviously the practice of sila supports the turning of attention inwards to develop more refined, continuous mindfulness in developing meditation objects, the breath, butto, metta, contemplation of the body, and so on. If things are too exuberant or outgoing, you know, you know, in our external behaviors, too much going on, 
and often not always very wholesome either, then very difficult to turn the mind to settle down and use a meditation object to develop some more continuity of mindfulness and firmness of mind that will lead to concentration and samadhi. Difficult to reflect on the Dhamma if there's too much agitation going on. As we practice keeping the sila, then you know, the, the composure, the restraint from the outside allows the mind to turn inwards, to be with a meditation object, to use it as a tool to bring up and maintain states of mindfulness, just mindfully aware of what we're doing at any one moment, what we're doing, what we're thinking, how we're feeling, if we are speaking or acting and we know why and what we're doing to know our intentions behind what we're doing. So not only being mindful of body, speech and mind, but be mindful of the big picture. What are we, what is the purpose of what we're doing from moment to moment through our day? Yeah, this is the practice of sati sampajanya, mindfulness, clear comprehension clear understanding. If we keep practicing sila, then this allows mindfulness, clear comprehension to develop easily, smoothly. You can see this in just the most mundane activities that we do, whether it's when you get up in the morning, if you have a wash or something, you need to be mindful, bring up mindfulness as you go to the toilet or have a wash. Actually just to practice mindfulness of those simple mundane activities and watch how easily the mind moves off because of the habitual nature of many mundane activities the mind just doesn't want to stay with them rather be thinking about something else distracted caught up into some thought pattern how easily that happens or say walking from your kuti to the meditation hall maybe it's a path that you've walked many times so it's so easy for the mind just to wander away. You know where you're going, you know the direction, so you're just letting the mind wander. So partly our sila helps us. We have to be mindful of you know, rules, ways of practice, and then partly just the effort of bringing more attentive states of mind, attentive states of mind to the present moment particularly with these more mundane activities, bring up more continuity of mindfulness through our day, not just when we're sitting or walking meditation. There was a doctor here a while ago talking about how many, they see many kinds of suffering in, uh, particularly I guess it emergency wards, outpatient wards of hospitals, and some very common kinds of accidents and mishaps people fall into 
is through what you might call unmindful hate behavior in very kind of mundane, ordinary situations. It's not uncommon for people to swallow their toothbrush as they're brushing their teeth, simply because they let their mind perhaps drift away, caught into some other business, thinking about what they're going to do later, or even in some emotional state, remembering something that made them upset, maybe brushing too vigorously or not watching what they're doing, and just swallow their toothbrush. Very occasionally even, not just swallow into the stomach, occasionally even the toothbrush has gone into into their lungs to be surgically removed. And toothbrushes are large things, so how on earth this can happen? But it can, human beings can do this, just through a lack of mindfulness in the most mundane, ordinary kind of habitual activity. And we can see that when we, we have rules to help us, say when you go, when you're in the forest, when you go into the toilet, you have rules that you have to pick the right spot to go to the toilet and do it in the right way. You you crouch down and you find a spot where you're not going to damage life or plants. And that's helping to make you mindful of a very mundane, ordinary kind of activity. And many monks have said, oh, they've not been very mindful when they crouch down to urinate and fall over so they didn't pick the right spot, end up in a mess, and so on. Or crouch down end up getting bitten by ants or something. Often it's the most mundane, ordinary situations where mindfulness slips away. Food is another one. You take, you know, every day we have to eat food. So in terms of a lifetime, we're talking about cumulatively weeks and months and years of eating food if you add it all up. All of that is a time to practice mindfulness in wisely reflecting I eat alms food. But just bringing mindfulness to the process, the activity of food. And we have the beginning, we have the sila to help us. So the way we obtain our alms food, say we have our, our alms bowl, we have the eyes cast down not looking around at other people if we're on Bindabhata. We don't look so much at the actual people who are offering the food and get caught up in that. We're looking down at our arms bowl, just reflecting on the act of offering this food, the purpose of it. Then say when you collect food, say if you're in the monastery and food is on tables, then you think about the food, what it is. Yes comes from the four elements, earth, air, fire, water. It's offered to support us in the practice for a day and a night. Later on when we eat it, it goes into the stomach, becomes something foul or unattractive. Eventually a large amount of it is excreted out of the body. When you're mindful, you're bringing the mind to just be attentive to the bare facts, the truth about food. And we use both the sila and then the reflective quality of the mind just to bring up what are we doing as we choose food and eat food. 
the alternative is just to follow delusion, isn't it? You follow craving, just think more about the color, the smell, the name of food, the uh, conventional reality surrounding food, what it is, what we're expecting from the food, the nice possible, the nice taste, what agrees with me, habits, views and opinions about diet, about different tastes and so on. That's all fueled by, you might say, craving and attachment. Whereas a practice of mindfulness around food is just bringing back to the bare reflection on why we eat, what's the purpose. And restraining, say, excitement. If there's particular food that we've, over our lifetime, built up a lot of liking for, attachment to. Restraining the excitement so we don't just eat unmindfully say maybe take a large amount of that particular food or food that we don't like say the feeling of disappointment or rejection if it's food that we don't doesn't agree with us or we find not tasty in the practice of mindfulness wise reflection cuts through that so the mind isn't just caught up into its own mental proliferation and moods at the time that we choose our food or eat our food we mindfully looking in our arms bowl. We don't look around at others either, comparing what others take too much, too little, this way, that way. Focus on our own food, our own act of eating and reflecting and bringing mindfulness to that simple act. Again, very easy to choke on food or can have mishaps, mishaps around food. We can spill things and make a mess. So we have many rules guiding us around that to not eat noisily or making a mess, spilling food around, just to be mindful on the bowl and so on. All of this is helping to keep the mind in the present moment and then just reflect on the truth of it. See so the impermanent nature of sense contact as you taste food, it's very impermanent comes and goes, arises, passes away. The sights, the sounds, the tastes associated with food. And in the whole process of eating food, you eat, chew, digest, later on excrete out. It's impermanent again. Body, the body is sustained by Food and the body itself is impermanent. It burns the food up through digestion and the heat produced by digestion keeps the body going, keeps it warm, we get energy and so on. But it all is a very impermanent process. It doesn't last that long. If you don't eat very much, then you get hungry again. You get the pangs of hunger, feel tired and so on. All of this is to be investigated with mindfulness, just observing the impermanence of this body, food, and really the nature of our life based around that one reflection. If we don't get enough food, then we start to starve. If it's for a day or two, maybe not too much pressure. But if it was for many days, we'd really be struggling. That's the dukkha of our existence. 
is dependent, you know, a happy, healthy life is dependent on getting food and the right kind of food as well. Very fragile existence if there was some hiccup in the process of getting food then we start to be really under pressure and that's, yes, that's the dukkha of existence as human beings if we never develop much mindfulness and investigate this then we tend to become complacent and just assume food is always going to be there we always have it maybe even feel entitled to it I have a right to food it's in its essence, it's food is four elements, and these four elements are without an owner. Superficially, we own food, we own the rights to food, we own, we can consider it our food once it's in our bowl. But if you keep investigating, you're also aware it's not our food, it's not anything that we can ultimately control. That's the nature of a human existence. It's actually very fragile. So a lot of our practice through our day, as well as sitting and walking, is also about just bringing mindfulness back to the present moment, using the sila, the training, different practices to do this. And this starts to show us basic truth, say the basic truth of impermanence. Mind states arise, pass away. Our different thoughts and feelings and emotions, they are arising, passing away all the way through our day. Even the more blissful, more happy states of mind we might start to experience, the joys of the Dhamma, practicing Dhamma, dana, sila, bhavana, even these can be very impermanent, coming and going. And that's a reflection, isn't it? That's an insight. If we start to invest all our efforts and our view is that we should be attaining some state of happiness and maintaining that all the time, without any reflection on impermanence, then very easily you're going to be disappointed. If we can see the conditioned nature of things more clearly and see, well, the more refined, more spiritual kind of happiness that does arise through the practice, well, it does come up through its own causes and conditions, but it also can fade very easily when causes and conditions change and we can't expect it to be there or shouldn't expect it to be there all the time. And that's an insight that can actually free the mind from suffering. It can be more at ease with the fact that I can't necessarily maintain deep states of samadhi every day, all day. They do come and go. The rapture, the bliss of practice, may come and if that's good if it does come that's good but it also will fade away again very quickly even if you have a very good meditation it might last sense a particular sense of calm or happiness might last for a while maybe even many hours even 
into the next day. It can last for days sometimes. But still, eventually, it's a condition of mind. But the reflection we can bring up any time, this is impermanent, this arises and passes away. This is the nature of the mind itself, thoughts, feelings, even the subtle feelings of that come with samadhi, even the, the bliss of insight, say, pity and sukha arises with insight sometimes, the relief of just seeing, understanding truth brings pity and sukha. But this can come and go. Even the Buddha had to experience, say, the pain of illness, the aches and pains of an aging body. You can't always expect to sort of get beyond that, but you can understand it as the way the way a human body is. It has aches and pains. You can have insight into that. No, this is impermanent. This is the nature of a human body. This is the nature of Vaitana. That insight is liberating. Because what it does, it cuts off the proliferation, say, based on the aversion or the rejection of any particular painful experience, unpleasant experience. It could be physical pain or just mental pain or just the inability of pleasant states of mind to sustain themselves, they pass away. All of this is food for insight, isn't it? Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, happiness, sadness, praise and blame, all the different worldly conditions that come our way, subject to impermanence, they come up and they go away again. All of this is a training that helps us to understand that much better, more deeply, ever going ever deeply into our experience, beginning maybe just with more ordinary reactions to things, with the highs and lows of our daily life, the ups and downs of thinking about this, thinking about that, memories, hopes for the future, Memories, stuck in memories, things the way things used to be. Hopes for the future, fears for the future, fearing the worst, and so on. But all of this is just the ups and downs, the ins and outs of the mental conditions, the mental states and thinking that we experience. Even the most basic insight we can start to see the changeable nature of these different moods. And this this kind of insight is always, if it's insight, it's liberating, frees the mind, meaning we don't grasp at things quite so much, don't get fooled by them quite so much. Maybe they still arise and we still sometimes get fooled by things, but maybe not quite as much as before. Any of us can develop that kind of wisdom just day by day living in the monastery. Obviously it's about refining that wisdom, that insight, maintaining it, refining it, maturing it so that it gradually becomes 
has a purification effect on the mind. You know, the mind is just seeing in and knowing impermanence more, but more and more through the practice, till it becomes just quite normal for the mind to understand impermanence. Maybe at first it's just glimpses of impermanence, settles things down, but then a little bit later we get all upset, turbulent again, caught up in our emotions and our reactions, hopes and fears and so on. Maybe later on things start to stabilize a little bit more because of the experience of contemplating impermanence. Physically and mentally we calm down a bit, practice the sila a bit more, reflect on things a bit more deeply, little by little that becomes more established in the mind. Then one has a real refuge. When we talk about the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha as a refuge, it's one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha, one who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. insight into anicca or dukkha or anatta yeah, that's the real refuge seeing the buddha I mean, seeing the the dhamma sees seeing anicca one starts to just know this is the way things are and the man doesn't get too upset by anything too flustered the mind is not shaken by things So I'll leave you with these few reflections for your consideration tonight.